Okay, we can worry about that later. Let's worry about it later. You ready? All right, let's go. And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf room, high atop the Cood Street Motel 6, it's the tardy, it's the late, it's the we should have been here a month ago, Cood Street Podcast with Jonathan Strawn and Gary K. Whoa! And welcome back from your adventures and uh, your uh, ceremonies and your parties and all the things you did while you were in, I presume it's pronounced Canberra? Canberra, yes. The Australian uh, capital. Uh, you know, Artificially constructed halfway between you know, Sydney and Melbourne, you know, draped with the you know, sort of Lake Burley Griffin artificially created, and then um, you know, drowned in, in civil servants and the ability to buy pornography and alcohol late at night. Something like Brasilia. <laughs> Perhaps. Though, it was possibly more successful. It was a good convention, actually. It was fun. It, it ran for four or five days. It was the... It was the, that gathering of the tribes that I think we all love, you know. Everybody came in from around the country, or, or most everybody did, um, and seemed to have a great time. Awards were presented. Uh, you can find results on the Locust uh, homepage and stuff. Uh, and dinners were had, and company was enjoyed. Uh, I got to see a number of our friends, some of whom you'll see again in uh, October for Brighton. But yes, it was a, a great time, a grand time. The only thing I didn't do, Gary, because uh, I'm just lame, I I meant to do a whole series of short podcasts there. Mm. There's all these really worthy and interesting Australian people who I spent time talking to. And instead I spent time talking to them, Gary, <laughs> rather than podcasting. We need, we need to get you a lapel mic for instant podcasts in the bar. I mean, you <laughs> and I have had this problem. Well, I mean, when we've, when we've, we're both guilty of this, I'll... Forgetting, forgetting the nightmare about the last um, Worldcon, there are always conversations you don't expect to have. This is my problem with planning anything like a podcast. Uh-huh. What I really want is a hidden little podcast microphone thing so that if you come across somebody in the bar you hadn't ever, ever expected to have a conversation with, you get a little five-minute segment here and there. Google Glass. The other thing I, the, the other thing I wanted to note about the, the, uh, the Detmars I was watching that via Twitter, I okay. and there, there was apparently no video feed as far as no, I know. No, there wasn't. There was. But I like the Twitter. I like the Twitter thing better because you're you're going back and forth among multiple points of view. It's like watching watching a Robert Altman movie or something. <laughs> it's, instead of watching this static camera with people, fuzzy people in the distance reading out names that you can barely understand because the sound system isn't very good, I'm getting four or five very distinct points of view of what's happening. <laughs> And, and you get a yay, and then you get somebody. So it really was very dramatic to watch that way. In addition to which, I must add to my resume that I was there. You were in 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 Lego Land. <laughs> you were you were there in Lego in spirit in Lego. In spirit, I think we should. There's some kind of a tradition there to be started, but I'm not sure. Well, all why. I can say is I think you're the only person that I'm aware of to ever at a science fiction convention during an awards ceremony be constructed in effigy in Lego. That could mean that could be good or bad news. <laughs> well, I didn't immolate the Lego later. Does that help? <laughs> That's well, it's, it's it's reassuring. It's very reassuring. You know, but uh, no, it was a great night. Lots of fun. Uh, well, in fact, one of the first things was it wasn't a night; it was only an hour and a half, which is a great mm-hmm. thing for an, uh, an awards ceremony, I think. Uh, hosted by our friend Deborah Biancotti, who did a wonderful job. 
Mm-hmm. H- hence the subsequent hashtag, no Deb, no Ditmars, because we feel mm-hmm. she should do it every year. She did attempt to give in to a number of my more ridiculous suggestions. There was a bubble machine. There was. There was a bubble machine, yes. I have to say the bubble machine looked like it wasn't going to be very good for the carpet, so the bubble machine was put away again. Uh, but it, it was going for a while. Uh, there were no kazoos, unfortunately, but that might have been my fault. I think uh, – no, 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 the bubble machine demands Lawrence Walk accordion music. Ah, you see. Next year. That's, next year. That's the if kind you, of experience I just don't have. If I if I get formally invited and possibly partially subsidized to go to next year's Ditmars, I will play the accordion. <laughs> well, we'll have to wait and see. Or, or, of course, you know, should you be nominated for another major award this year? Oh, dude, you are. You, you could take your, your accordion to uh, the Hugos. Don't even no, – that, 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 this is only – other continents. This well, what, 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 where nobody who you actually know might be. Nobody in the U.S. know what I actually know. <laughs> I think that you're really underplaying, on undervaluing you know, the, the, you know, what you could achieve here. I think the Hugos would be mightily perked up. And now that I think about it, as I look through my email, I was contacted by the Hugo people just the other day, so I could make this suggestion myself. I don't think that we're going in the right direction here. <laughs> now, what's her name? Julie something, I think it is. Yes. Ah, something to remember for after, after the podcast. We'll talk about that. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, uh, well, we, we, we didn't win the Ditmar, but nope. the local award nominations are out, and congratulations to you there. Thank you very much, and uh, I'm very, very pleased, and congr- you know, th- sort of thank you to all of the Locus Award uh, no, no, you know, nominators, and, and uh, th- you know, sort of congratulations to the my many fellow nominees as well. Uh, a nice list, I thought, all in all. I mean, there's always something that's worthy that's missing, and we always expect that with any set of awards is inevitable, but I thought it was a good ballot. One of them, several uh, we've got, but yes. It's a, there's several good ballots. I was impressed this year by the uh, Shirley Jackson Awards ballot. Yes. Uh, partly, partly because we have spent uh, an embarrassing amount of time on this podcast praising the drowning girl. But I, 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 my test... My test for any kind of a fantasy award this year is, as to its competence is whether that novel is on the ballot. So, so will that be your litmus test for the World Fantasy Awards? Yes, it will be. Will you boycott the banquet if it's not on the on the ballot? Um, I try to eat as little at the banquet anyway. <laughs> I don't think tickets are available for the banquet yet, but as soon as they are, we'll have to discuss that. But yes, um, no, I mean, without sort of going through it in, in depth, I thought it was a, a fine ballot. There's, again, always something missing. Um, but all in all, well, it occurred to me that there, there are awards that the, the, the um, Tiptree Award nominees wrote. I was on that jury, and the Drowning Girl is on that as well. But there's a difference between awards that are named after a writer or dedicated in the spirit of a particular writer. Mm-hmm. The James Tiptree Awards and the Shirley Jackson Awards being examples. Uh, from awards that are generally named, that, that are generic awards. I mean, the Hugo Awards are not named because of Hugo Gernsback. The writer, no. are they? I mean, God help us if they started giving Hugos to people who actually wrote like Hugo Gernsback. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but the Shirley Jackson yeah. Awards and yep. the James Diptree Awards are meant to echo the spirit of those right. writers. Yes. Um, and my sense is that generally, especially in the novel category, uh, the Shirley Jackson Awards nominees got it right. There's a temptation in that award to move to make it a, a kind of horror award 
Yeah. And my argument has always been, and I've argued this with lots of friends, most of who actually agree with me, so the argument doesn't get... Yeah, yeah, one of those things where you start arguing with somebody and you find out they say, yeah, we knew that already, yep. and then you argue that Shirley Jackson was never a horror writer. No, no. There are certainly horrific effects, as they say, but um, what she did was kind of odd, off-center, unnerving, certainly, and there's a lot of stuff that's recognized in that. Uh, the Tip Tree Awards are a little bit different. They're not, they're not trying to recognize the kind of style or generic manipulations that Tip Tree did. In other words, they're not awards for people who write like Tip Tree. Yeah. But they're awards for people whose fiction does some of the same, same things in regard to gender that some of Tip Tree's fiction did. Yes, I think that's fair. And, you know, they've come up with, a, 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 in fact, not only a, a, a good batch, a great batch of work, but some stuff that I've simply not read. I mean, I've, in fact, one or two I've not even heard of. I don't think I've heard of The Devil in Silver by Victor Laval. Uh, so that's interesting. I mean, and I'm not surprised not to have heard of them. Some of this stuff is slightly outside of the spectrum of what I, I cover for either Locus or for my best of the year. But uh, interesting to see it go past. It's one of the things which I think is also interesting. He, he was a mainstream writer who I think may have been on the short list when the year I was on it. was an African-American writer who'd written a book called The Big, I think, Big Machine. The Big, oh, I'll have to look at it. Um, and he's always been marketed as a mainstream writer. Yeah. Uh, the fact that uh, it, it, it's, it's always a kind of a, a sense of cosmopolitanism and maybe a sense of generosity when juries are willing to look outside um, and recognize books that don't recognize us. Yeah. In the sense that the publicity, we were talking about this actually before the podcast. Yeah. There's some books that Locus simply doesn't get because we're not on the radar of the publicists. That's of, very true. Of, of publishers. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean that we as critics or award committees or reviewers shouldn't try to find those books. Uh, one no. of the ones we were talking about was, was Ben Percy's new novel, which is about, you know, an alternate world with, with yeah. werewolves. Which, which Locus reviewed back in March. Mm -hmm. Um. But by and large, that that's, that says to me that the committee is casting its net fairly widely. Yeah. And it looked to me like the net in this year's Shirley Jackson Awards particularly was was especially wide and especially generous and inclusive. I think so. Um, and I think it would make an interesting reading list. And, of course, you will be dipping into part of it because I think the novelette by Brian, Bruce McAllister that makes that list is part of the his new novel that just made its way to you. Which I just received in the mail today and looks very exciting. Yeah. And of course, one thing that, that this particular shortlist backed up from my mind is just what an amazing year for short story collections it was. Because once again, what you see is a really, really strong batch of, of short story collections. Mm -hmm. Which is nice. And in fact, strong enough, I don't think it even overlaps. In fact, I don't think it overlaps with one on the Locust list, which is interesting. Really? Yep. That's... Well, the, the, you know, that to me is a, is, is a healthy sign. I mean, yeah. when, you, when you look at something like the Shirley Jackson Awards, when you introduce a new award into, let's face it, a very award-crowded field. Oh, Lord, yes. We can... how, to, how to differentiate it is, is really um, difficult. I mean, you've got, uh, how, do you, how do you distinguish, let's say, the Campbell Awards, the, yeah. the Sturgeon Award nominations came out this week. And how do you really distinguish those from the Nebulas or the Hugos? Uh. They're all covering essentially the same territory. Um, and then there are all these world horror awards, and there's yes. the, and I don't talk about books I've never heard of, um, publishers I've never heard of. Yes. Um, 
and yet I, I'm, some of them, when I read them later or when somebody you know shows one to me, are, are perfectly fine. Some are excellent. But the Shirley Jackson Awards, for example, shouldn't overlap with that. No. And I'm guessing they shouldn't overlap much with the Locus Awards either. Well, I mean, yeah, okay. I, I just think it's interesting that you could go that you could get through that and find that you had stuff that that didn't overlap. Uh, I mean, look at the stuff that's on the Shirley Jackson short collection list, right? Mm. And I'll, I'll just just I've got an aside on this to come back to. You've got Jonathan Carroll's The Woman Who Married a Cloud, Andy Duncan's The Pottawatomie Giant, The Pottawatomie Giant, yes. Uh, yeah. Brian Evanson's Wind Eye, Jeff Forge's Crackpot Palace, Liz Hand's Errantry. And Robert Shearman's "Remember Why You Fear Me." None of those made the Locust uh, thing. Instead, you had "Best of Cage Baker," "Shot Off and Bloom" by Elizabeth Bear, "At the Mouth of the River of Bees" by Kids Johnson, "The Dragon Growl" by Lucia Shepherd, and the two-volume selected stories of Le Guin. Well, I think the difference there is the difference between a judged award and a yeah. voted award. Yes. I mean, essentially, any popular vote award is going to be based on books that come to the attention of. Well, it's true. That's the average reader, for lack of a better term. Um, mm -hmm. Names that are familiar to the average reader, uh, books that come from large presses, books that get wide coverage, um, books that are not... Uh, it's Kids Johnson is one, absolutely one of the best short story writers to come along in the science fiction field in years, if yep. not decades. But she's also very popular. Yep. She's won awards in the past. People have been waiting for this book. It's a small beer book. Small beer is beloved by fans and readers. Uh, a collection like Wind Eye by Brian Evanson essentially comes from a small literary press. If you don't know who Brian Evanson is, you're not going to find the book. Uh, I don't. I don't know if we reviewed it in Locust. Now that I think about it, I don't know. I, I will point one thing out for you, not to derail our conversation too much. The title of episode 141, and we're recording episode 142 as we speak, was yes. "Oh No, Another Awards Discussion." And in the write-up, I'm fairly sure I swore we wouldn't discuss awards for ages. Well, you know, we have to we have to lubricate the bearings here and, 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 and you know, <laughs> get started. Let me let me change the topic. Okay. Okay. Here, here's here's a question. Um, one of the things we were talking about, uh, and I had a conversation with our friend Karen Burnham about this. Coming back to the idea of um, is the field failing itself, which goes back to Paul King Cade's essay which was much more sophisticated than that argument mm -hmm. um, but there are two arguments that seem to come up with some regularity in science yep. fiction one is that it's this past year it's a death knell on uh, the other it's become completely self-reflective the death knell argument let me see if i can find this really quickly i'm going to read you a short paragraph i love a short paragraph that begins and see and and, and I'll, i will let our readers figure out if they can figure out what this is coming from uh the year's SF, a summation by the editor. This was the year the house collapsed. The house of cards, I mean, otherwise known as the science fiction boom. It's been rough all over. And I don't mean only since the pieces began to blow off the top a couple of three years back. I mean almost from the beginning, since five years ago, when the structure first began to climb precariously higher than its foundations could support. There were pretty, plenty of reasons for the collapse, but none that couldn't have been predicted. None that weren't inherent in the buildup. What do you suppose that sounds like? That that well, that sounds, sounds like a very gloom and doomy assessment of the uh, science fiction field. Now, I, I, it, it's a disingenuous question for you to ask, Gary, because of course I can see the book you're holding up. Well, that's that's true. 
<laughs> so I'm going to guess, well, Gary, this, if this, I can. No, 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 we need to explain to people that we are actually yeah. watching each other on FaceTime while we're recording each other on Skype. So that's the reason he can see that. And that's the reason why you folks out there in Radio Land cannot see us. That's true. Though we, yeah, we could put up a video someday, but who would want to see this? Um, I think it's Judith Merrill in the Known Press edition of uh, the US Best Science Fiction Stories, Gary. Would I be correct? Oh, how did you manage to get that so insightful, so perspicuous? That was the first paragraph of the uh, summation, the year summation, in Judith Merrill's very first year's best anthology, which came out from Gnome Press in 1956 with an introduction by Orson Welles. The very first year's best anthology from Judith Merrill. There had been year's best anthologies from Blyler and Dickey before that. But Judith Merrill was the one who made the year's best anthology and institution in science fiction. Yes. And her very first trip out, she says it's all over. <laughs> the game is afoot. You know, <laughs> this would have been volume, there would, might have been a volume two, but frankly, I've decided to pack it in and go home. It's not worth it. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> but it's, it's also worth noting that the first volume of her book, which later became quite successful, came from a small independent press, Gnome Press. Yes, it did. It might as well, you know, if, if, if this were. If, if, if we were in 1956 now, it might as well have been Small Beer Press or Tachyon or, or Subterranean publishing the year's best because none of the major publishers wanted it back then. No, it was quite some years before one came out from a major publisher. I'd be curious actually to go back to the Blyler and Dicty bests of the years, the ones that started this all off. Yeah, I've and, got a couple of those. Uh, and see whether and, they had a similar tone because what I suspect is that there's uh, an, an optimistic view in the mind's eye of any reader or observer of the science fiction field about what it ideally could be and so when yes. they write these introductions they uh what they actually do is they assess the difference between what they see happening before them and what they think it should be rather than hmm. making any reasonable assessment of of the actual health of the field i think that's true and i think to be honest when they talk about the health of the field they talk about things like markets uh and uh, not necessarily about the quality of the fiction i think generally these introductions and afterwards to annual anthologies tend to take two forms. And the Bly- I, I did look at the Blyler and Ditka. I've got their 1953. I think I've got the second one they did. I mm-hmm. don't have the first one. And they tend to be very much insiders' accounts. In yeah. other words, here are a lot of here, here are stories by people like you know, Ted Cogswell, and there's one by I think I don't know I don't remember who's in it. Yeah. But by and large, they're writing. Um, for an inside audience, they were published by a small, by, by not a small press. Frederick yeah. Pell, Frederick Fell was not a small press, but it was not a, a big big name press either. Yeah. And so their things are like, okay, you people have all been reading Astounding uh, and Amazing, and here are the best stories. It was very much an inside kind of attitude. Merrill was one of the first editors. I think was the first editor. Well, no, she wasn't. August Derleth was, but she was one of the first editors <laughs> to address. To address her anthologies to the outside world, yeah. to be an evangelist, to be a proselytizer. Yeah. Uh, it's very clear that her first anthology was not meant to satisfy the science fiction audience, was meant to bring in more people yeah. to the science fiction audience. Though she it was doing ultimately, things, ultimately became an insider's book, didn't it, again? You know, because it, it eventually became an insider's book, uh, partly because I think uh, the experiment worked. I mean, her uh, she ended up being published by... Delacorte, I think, by yeah. Dell at least. Yeah. But I mean, the very first one out, she had, she had Orson Welles write the introduction. 
Uh, and Orson Welles' introduction is basically a sermon on why you should read science fiction. It's not directed to science fiction readers. Yeah. She has stories, well, she has stories by some people that are still around. There's a James Gunn story in it. Um, and there are some stories that became classics, like uh, a Budra story, Shirley Jackson. But there's a Shirley Jackson story in it. Um, there's a Jack Finney story in it. There's a Steve Allen, the TV yeah, personality. Yeah, 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 yeah. So she's clearly trying at that point to do something that we are now praising people for doing uh, in casting the net wider and, and yeah. trying to bring science fiction to a wider audience. So my question to you as an anthologist of a year's best is which are you? Are you talking to those of us in the pews or are you going out and trying to convert new readers? I'm probably talking to those of us in the pews, I guess. I'd like to be uh, doing both, and I try to do both, but probably realistically, given that I've been coming out from... Uh, my book comes out from a science fiction small press mm -hmm. uh, and has a strongly science fictional cover on it and tries to straddle traditional, more traditional center of the fiction field, science fiction and fantasy, as well as more interesting experimental work, it's probably a, a, a it more inward-looking book, I guess. Um, though I've not particularly thought about it in those terms until now. Probably the most overt example of a year's best trying to go out to the rest of the world was probably the Vandermeer's one from a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most of the rest of them look inward, not least because that's where your core readership is going to come to buy the copies of your books. Well, I think there are a couple. Of, there are obviously a lot of things that complicate the issue, and that, um, for example, you'll look at small press publications that are not necessarily science fiction yeah. small press publications. So there's you're, you're you're casting a pretty broad net there, um, and you're right. The publisher that you've been working with is a publisher that wants to reach the science fiction audience. Yeah. The science fiction audience is adequate to support a book now. Yeah. That was, and it, it probably was when, when, when Merrill was doing it too, but Merrill was a proselytizer her whole career. I guess, and, and th th there's nothing wrong with that kind of anthology. It seems to me that uh, Gardner just was yeah. anthologies have been internal anthologies almost from the beginning. They, they have, have been, been celebrations of the year that science fiction readers like. And I've said this in my reviews, and I've said it to Gardner that you know sometimes you look at the opening story in a Gardner does well, you're well, yeah, best down the trilogy, and it is not meant to invite new people into science fiction. Well, I am a, a, a great fan of of Gardner's and his books, but I guess if I were to point a criticism at them, it's that I've always felt that he's he saw them as being. That seed pod you could drop somewhere in the in the Midwest in the 1950s, and a science fiction, a, a pseudo science fiction fan or a potential science fiction fan could find it, and find everything they could possibly need to extrapolate science fiction from it. Um, but I think there is a, you, you make a interesting point that really it it can sometimes have a real entry barrier problem. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm one of the people it's intended for, so I enjoy it enormously. Yeah. Uh, but every every once in a while, I, I taught one of them. Um, in a science fiction class once and it was very interesting to watch the students divide into the people who thought this yeah. is just the coolest thing ever yeah. and the people who thought uh, can I you know can I change my registration to another class now <laughs> uh, I'll also so I, yeah I mean but 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 on the other hand I'm, I'm just talking to you as an anthologist now yeah on the other hand when you do an anthology like under my hat yeah that seems to me 
not directed toward fantasy readers. Oh, is it really? Okay. Who do you see as being directed towards? I see as being directed toward kids who have not lost their sense of magic. Yes, I think there's some truth to that. Yes. Uh, I, I guess the first thing is that any book that's successful, and by that I mean uh, uh, artistically successful, creatively successful, has more than one potential audience, however much it's packed, however it's packaged or whatever else. And Under My Hat probably had two target audiences. It had the young reader who has a sense of, you know, is interested in the sense of magic in, what the, in the world, who is exploring and looking for something new and different. And to that extent is, a, is also a bit of a gateway because here are these stories by these people and you can encounter them. Um, and it's also a, the kind of book which an older person who hasn't quite lost that, um, that edge to their, their, their reading and their worldview will be able to encounter and enjoy uh, and get something out of. Well, you just described your audience completely in terms of non-genre readers, which is interesting to me. I think it's true. I think that uh, the, the young readers, there's no doubt that there's, there, there's an attraction there. And I think that Sharon November has proved that with her Firebirds series and her Firebirds anthologies and so forth. And there are the adult readers who really like to read fantastic kids stories and their mainstream readers otherwise but there's a third group which is very important to an anthology like under my hat there are people who think oh here's a new ellen clage story oh yes absolutely want to follow they're completely genre oriented look, followers of specific writers that are in that anthology yeah look i, I so could not for a second say that that book has not also been i mean okay we're, we're talking different issues here we're talking about artistic success and the commercial success yes um um to a point, because you're talking about finding readers. To a point, we are. I'm, I'm, I'm just talking about audiences, but go okay, on. Okay, well, with your okay, point. well, okay. Whenever you put together a book like Under My Hat and you feature writers in it, you know, you expect that Peter Beagle readers, that Patricia McKillop readers, Ellen Clagis readers, Holly Black readers, Neil Gaiman readers, they will mm. pick up this book partly because they love those writers. Yes. And I think that's true. I think you know, any successful book will will take that into account part of the challenge i guess is piecing those people into the right project so that they are an artistic fit you know uh so that when you, you know, when you write a book of you know, young when you get to a book of young adult witch stories like under my head is that you know neil gaiman is a natural fit for that Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, so so are most of the other people. I mean, you, you like to throw one or two people in who are slightly left field, even though this book doesn't so much. I think this book really sort of stuck with it as a as its core, its core mission. Yeah. But there is enough there to reach out beyond. I mean, the fact that you, that um, you've got Clay, I mean, Clay just to me is she should be a New Yorker writer. She probably should be, and, and probably in the early fifties she might have been. Yeah, you know, and in some ways, uh, I think you're right to mention that she, you know her story from Under My Hat, the education of a witch, uh, could have been on say the um, the uh, Jackson Shirley Jackson ballot because she's a sure. natural fit for that kind of a thing. She's a l- smart literary writer who doesn't actually particularly write genre fiction at all, writing in a genre space. Mm-hmm. And that's what she's done with the education of a witch. You know, you could argue the education of a witch isn't a fantasy story at all. 
that is actually a mainstream story. Well, there are, there, there are a number of stories, and you could argue that uh, same thing about a number of Shirley Jackson stories, sure. which, is why she's, uh, which is why she'd be appropriate for consideration for that award. But, um, but there are few enough stories from Ellen, and we'll just pick on her for a minute. There are few enough short stories from, I, from Pat McKillop yeah. um, that somebody who really admires their work is going to see that, and that alone will possibly sell a copy of the book. I know that's a fact with a Neil Gaiman story. I oh, know sure. I, I'm, I'm well aware of you know the Neil Gaiman hordes who will buy anything, but but essentially, that's maybe that's a fourth audience. Maybe maybe there's the audience of the children we're talking about. There's the audience of adults who really like children's fantasy but aren't necessarily genre readers. There's the audience of genre readers who recognize a lot of important names in the field and think I should check this out. And then there's the audience us of individual writers in the book who. Mm. Find, find that worth following. And I think what you have to do is put together, uh, it's not your job as the editor, I suppose it's the publicist or the publisher, publisher's job to find how you gather all those audiences together. Well, I think some of them are self-assembling, Gary. Well, I mean, when you put together the basic project itself, you're know, like, when, when I decided, gosh, I want to do a witch's book for my daughters, yeah. and then extrapolated into the kind of book that I would do when I was doing a witch's book for my daughters, you know, uh, I wanted Neil Gaiman in there because not because he's Neil Gaiman, in, you know, international bestseller, but because he probably has the most warm and welcoming reading uh, writing voice that I know of, and because mm -hmm. he could write something really nice in that space. Uh, and in the end, the he didn't write a story for me. In the end, he wrote wrote a poem. But uh, uh, and mm. the story, as we all know, went on to become his new novel. But. He sits in that space. I mean, arguably someone like Margot Lanigan, who's in the book, doesn't. She sits more on the edge of it. She's sort of a, a, a right. uh, harsher, more challenging kind of a writer in some ways than, than Neil can be. Uh, and so you can see wh where yeah, Neil and Holly and Garth Nix and Patricia, uh, Diana Peterfriend, these, these people all sit in a, a space together that really works well and resonates with one another. And what you're yeah. trying to do with any of these things, any book, I mean, forget the market, right? Think about the book itself. You're trying to blend different tones so that the book is rewarding and interesting. You, you don't want to do a, a witch story where every single or a witch book where every single story is, you know, old crone in, in, in black hat with, with with broomstick cackling in the in the background maniacally because that would be boring. Mm -hmm. uh, you want something that's going to give you a bit of spec a real spectrum and uh, of kinds of stories. And one of the ways you do that is to get a spectrum of writers involved. And that's why you would go. Why I went to the group of people I did for this book, you know, uh, and that then built, you know, follows on to its readership. Do you, okay, just as uh, curious, uh, these these were actually writers you solicited for contributions to this work. Yes. Do you think, or do you feel, in some ways, that their awareness that they were contributing to an anthology, which is essentially a theme anthology, sort of spike their creativity in a way that they might not in other words they were probably not necessarily thinking of writing a witch story yes i think that's but now they're thinking true. of writing a witch story and they know your reputation as an anthologist and you know that there are going to be a lot of other good witch stories in this book so they have to more or less rethink the premises of what a witch is and where a witch might be well very much i mean first of all the initial invitation that was sent to them um asked them to do that you know, ask them to. Oh, you know, okay. I, I, it, it was put in front of them to sort of that I wanted them to give me their version of what a witch would be, and mm -hmm. to really 
deconstruct and rethink it. And maybe if they came back to a old crone in, in, in black, well, that's fine. But to, to at least try, try to rethink it. And I think that there's a number of people who perhaps weren't thinking about writing anything about witches at all. I mean, the example that comes to my mind most clearly, and it's one of two examples in my recent editing that has happened, is Mary Rickard. Because mm-hmm. Mary Rickard, I know, had no intention of writing anything about witches, and now is most of the way through a novel about witches. Mm-hmm. And that sprang directly from the story in this book. You know, Which is probably one of the reasons that writers enjoy many of them. The challenges wow. of being invited to. to I think the, I think there I think there are a number of reasons you get challenged to do something you wouldn't otherwise have done. Mm-hmm. I think at times, particularly novelists who write short stories, they only have a small amount of time. They may only do it when they've got a particular reason, and they want something that will spark them to do it. You know, mm-hmm. if you just say the number, I mean, if, if I were to say as I was when I was doing the Eclipse stuff, you know, just write me a story you're much likely, more likely to not get a story from an established writer if you do that than if you say, I want a story about something because they need that point to sort of coalesce their own story around. And they may go off on some weird tangent, as many of them have over the, over the years, but they need that, that, that spark, that first sort of spot of sand in the, in the oysters to get it all going. Well, without meaning to... Uh make any suggestions at all about the existing editors of the magazines, uh, uh, Gordon Van Gelder and Sheila Williams and so forth. I wonder if the role, if the anthologist has to some extent adopted the role that some of the editors in the 50s and 40s used, in 30s maybe, um, used to do. We know, we know, for example, that Campbell prodded his yeah. authors to write stories. We know that H.L. Gold would get a story uh, I, I've heard this, and this is probably completely a rumor, and it's probably unsubstantiated, and it's probably completely unfair, that that Gold would get a bad story from one writer, but a good idea, and, and ask another yeah. writer to do it. Yeah. Uh, but still, the idea was that a number of writers were out there. On the one hand, they're trying to generate story after story after story to make a living back in the days when you had to make a living writing short stories. On the other hand, the editors wanted to shape their magazines by getting certain stories, certain kinds of stories from certain writers. They didn't know what they would be exactly, but they knew they wanted this author to treat this idea in some vague way. Is that what anthologists are doing now instead of magazine editors? I don't think so, no. I don't think anybody really? can do that now. Uh, in ter- well, first of all, in terms of shaping a writer, by mm-hmm. and large, there are too many markets out there for one editor to shape a writer. I don't um, mean shaping a writer. I and in terms of shaping... Well, okay. Does an editor shape an idea? I think all of them do. Hopefully any good editor is to some degree shaping an idea. But are they, and this is really where I think you're coming from, aiming that argument then at the rest of the field? Mm -hmm. Are they shaping their publication, whether it be a volume of an anthology or a... um, issue of a magazine or a year of a magazine, run of a magazine or whatever else. I think editors attempt it, certainly. And I can think of examples in recent times. I can, I mean, I, I happen to have up on my computer screen as we're talking uh, still the, um, you know, the Locust Ballad. And I look at the mm-hmm. anthology list and I think, well, when Nick Mamatis and Masumi Washington did the future of Jap- Japanese, were they trying to shape the field? Yes, I think they were. I think they were yes, trying they were. to impact the field quite clearly. Um, I'm not sure when Datlow and Windling did after they were trying to. They have done it in other books. I think they were more reflecting something with that. Mm. I know with Edge of Infinity, I was trying to do both. 
Um, the, I, I guess the part of the question that I respond to is, do I do I think it can be do I think it can be effective? You know, do I think that an editor with a with a magazine or a single anthology or whatever else can significantly influence the field? And that's a harder question to answer. I'm I'm, I'm more skeptical about it. I think the magazines generally are less focused than they were at a time when when you could have seen somebody actually um, changing the field like that. You know. Um, well, in a way, there are more magazines. I mean, well, there, there are a lot of them now. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, also, I mean, the thing is, it's not so much that there, that there are a lot more magazines. I think that's a dangerous argument to make because if you, the example that everybody gives about shaping the field is Campbell and Astounding, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Now, at its height, Astounding was slugging it out with many, many other publications. Uh, mm. But no single publication dominates science fiction the way Astounding did. I don't think. I don't think Asimov's do- does as strong as it can be. I don't mm. think Analog does. I don't think FNSF do. I don't think Clark's World or Tor.com or any of the uh, Lightspeed or any of the others do. So allowing for that, you know, I, I think the the ability to do it has changed. Well, I think do- in terms of dominating the field, I think I think you're right. I and mean, we've talked many times about how the field has become so atomized over the last several decades that there isn't there isn't a field to dominate anymore. Yeah. Um, and it's worth noting, as, as dominant as Campbell was in short science fiction, uh, his attempt to dominate short fantasy fiction essentially failed. Yeah. I mean, Unknown created some terrific stories and enabled a number of terrific writers, Fred Sliber, Henry Cutter, and so forth, to write terrific stories. But as, as an attempt to do something in short fantasy similar to what it had done in science fiction, it failed. It folded after, what, three years? Yes, yes. So to some extent, you can't do that deliberately and when you do do it you can only do it in the field which is fairly narrowly focused to begin with yes essentially what what Campbell did uh, I gather trying to remember my science fiction history now is that he, he he effectively redefined science fiction into a much narrower definition than it had had in the 30s yeah and then he came to dominate that in other words he said okay this is science fiction. He pointed to Heinlein and he pointed to Asimov. This is science fiction. This is what I want you to write. Once you've narrowed the field to that sort of yeah. tunnel, then of course you can dominate that. Yes. When you try to deal with something like short fantasy, which wasn't even a coherent notion of a genre in, in, in 1940, he couldn't do it. Yeah. He couldn't corral those writers. You can't corral fantasy the way you could corral science fiction, and now you can't even corral science fiction that way. Uh, no, I mean, uh, I think it would be a ch- if let's say your mass, your 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 intention your mission was to corral science fiction that way, I'm not sure you could. I'm not sure why you would, but it would be an expensive and difficult venture because you would need to buy out the market, or or narrow your focus even more clearly, which essentially what analog has done. Well, except what happens now, I think, is that everybody's narrowed their focus or are narrowing their focus, you know. Everybody is. Mm-hmm. And so what you end up with is a whole bunch of narrow f- point focuses which are arguably dominating smaller and smaller and more precise markets and reader groups, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But they don't always then cross-influence one another and expand out to a broader discussion. Which brings me back to the question of the anthologist or the year's best editor. Yeah. Because you have to look at all these micro-genres and figure out 
do you try to represent them all in an anthology? Do you simply figure out the best steampunk story uh, of the year? And do you, I'm sure, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I know the answer to this, but if you look at a particular year and say, basically all the short steampunk fiction this year sucked, and I'm not going to put one in the anthology. So, in other words, you're looking at a different set of standards than simply representing all the different micro-genres, I assume. That's true. I think you start off by, well, well, you start off by trying to read and be aware of everything you can. That's the first thing you do. Uh, you try to be aware of all these micro-genres, all of the various groups who are writing, all the places they can be writing. You're aware out of the box you're going to miss stuff, but you're trying. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, well, as in my book, you've got two, big, rather than a lot of micro-genres, you've got two big blobs you're trying to sort of deal with, science fiction and fantasy, whatever they may be. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I try and do, I guess, is compile the best of two fuzzy sets and then let them mingle. Mm-hmm. You know, because science fiction and fantasy do overlap significantly these days. And I don't want to particularly care about how much they do or don't. I'm content that they do. Um, but I want things that are like at the very center of science fiction, at the very center of fa- fantasy, you know, with the most recent book that I did, uh, Volume 7 of the Best of the Year, you know, when mm-hmm. you do, take a story like Macy Minutes Last Christmas on Dion by Paul McCauley, right? I mean, that's a pure yeah. h- hardcore science fiction story. Uh, or, and if you get a story like, say, Great Grandmother in the Cellar by Peter Beagle, it's a hardcore fantasy story. Yeah. And then you, then you can smatter things like The Grinnell Method by Molly Gloss around it. Or, um, I don't know, may, maybe uh, The Contrary Gardener by Chris Rowe or something. Um, and that builds a kind of mosaic picture of what the field might have been like a bit through one person's reading. That's what you try to it's do. Just, well, I mean, I, and I find that fascinating. And I'm assuming that uh, a lot of readers do because these are well-recognized anthologies. But to some extent, there's also the question of, uh, you mentioned, um, I don't know, let's take the Chris Rose story and the Paul McCauley story. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting vision of a reader who enjoys both of those stories equally. I have to confess that reader is me, Gary. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> and I, I, I say that because I'm an, the acquiring editor for both of those stories originally. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, okay. I mean, one was in Edge of Infinity and one was in On Eclipse Online. So I, I, well, I okay. confess that up front. Here's, here's, but here's, yeah, this no, is no. The other- I, I know I'm cornering you as an anthologist, but I mean, during the year you had Under My Hat and Edge of Infinity. Yes. Again, two anthologies pointing in, most people would think, completely opposite directions. Yes. That's because I'm a science fiction and fantasy reader, Gary. I guess the real core of the question, and I'm obviously one myself, and sometimes I'm a horror reader. Uh, and the big question which we keep asking about genre is... Why are these three genres allied, and why do so many of the same people enjoy stories that are so disparate and so conceptually alien from one another as something like a hard science fiction Paul McCauley story and uh, a Peter Beagle story or, or, or something like uh, we talked about Ellen Clage's Education of a Witch, which is almost mainstream. Is it because um, they all um, potentially trigger a similar reaction in terms of magic and wonder? think you're on to something, but I think we've basically chewed up the word wonder to the point where it's suitable for baby bird food. No, no, I, th- I think sure. you're right. But I mean, okay. The story is in Under My Hat and in, sto- in books like Under My Hat, I think. Mm-hmm. 
um, are about engaging with a version of the world in about being oh captivated by it about being surprised by it uh and about uh, having something unexpected and wonderful come i mean to use wonder again to, uh, to, mm-hmm. to come at you and if you pick up a book like edge of infinity um it has some of the same thing about it i mean it's an, it's an older book so it's aimed at a different audience but uh oh, yeah. there's still that thing at the heart of science fiction i mean to me the the most awe inspiring moment in almost any of the books i ever have edited was in a story by uh, Greg Egan in the new space opera mm-hmm. called Glory, where he describes how he would construct a spaceship and send it to another solar system. And it's just this, uh, you, you may re- recall, it's this crazy thing where he, at hyperspeed, rams two atoms of al- al- aluminum together. Oh, I had a long conversation with Charles Brown about that very story, as a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah. And... I think that part is is the core of science fiction for me. It's it, that's the oh wow kind of a thing, you know. And I think we yeah. respond to that. And I, I think there's something in that oh wow response is also what you get out of great fantasy. I don't know about horror. I, horror, I, I'm more complicated. I, yeah, I, I I guess that's true. And it can it can happen in horror. There's a sublime element to horror, yeah. which yes, uh, is is difficult to achieve, but it's been achieved more often than not. And there's there's an interaction between these things. I guess I guess what we're at is a basic problem uh, as, as as a critic or as an academic critic that we don't have a really good vocabulary for talking about that even after we've yeah. been talking about it for a half century or more. Yeah, true. Um, the sense the sense we we call back we fall back on sense of wonder and people people now write it in the Sam Moskowitz sense of wonder uh, <laughs> spelling, which yeah. irritates the hell out of me. Uh, but that doesn't explain anything. No, it doesn't. It's just an absolutely abstract term for, for an emotion that's anything but abstract. I, I guess the thing is, I mean, this is not something that I've particularly tried to rationalize in the past. Uh, and I say that because uh, most of us, well, I, I started reading when I was what, six or seven. I started choosing my own books around that sort of an age, seven or eight, maybe. And I was reading science fiction and fantasy interchangeably at the time. As well, along, I mean, like, for some reason, along with school stories and stories about talking animals for whatever reason mm-hmm. like Tarka the Otter that kind of a thing but I was as like to be reading The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe as an Andre Norton novel or a Robert Heinlein novel mm-hmm. they were actually in some ways what they were for me at the time I guess is they were the the menu of kids stories that were available you know when I was seven or eight or nine Mm-hmm. That that's what you had. There was some realistic stuff, and there was some fantastic stuff, and there was some science fictional stuff, and there was some slightly dark stuff, not too dark, and whatever else. And there was no real no, nothing it, in my lifetime, you know, during my life at that time, uh, from ages seven or eight through till fourteen or fifteen, mm-hmm. that would have distinguished one from the other in a meaningful way, other than I liked reading them. And my brother, who had who who read alongside me, was a year and a half older than me. Uh, read very similarly, slightly differently, but quite similarly. And so there was no argument in my life to say that you had to distinguish between these things, and that disti- that distinction only became later on, and still feels like a false distinction to me. They're all just part of reading, which is a really useless kind of thing to say. But I still think is part of how you, I mean, like I still like science fiction and fantasy and horror and the occasional thing. I like, you know, and it's not that I've got particularly Catholic taste. I think mo- many many readers do. 
I did an essay once on, on, on uh, autobiographical writings by science fiction writers, and it's very similar to what you just described. Yeah. Uh, there, there, there's a common element of writers fighting with their parents to get into the adult section of the public yeah, library, yeah. for example, uh, because or, or, or there's the business about finding the little logos with rockets on the sides of books yeah. and, and, and trying to get beyond that. But there's a point at which uh, somewhere reading becomes differentiated. Uh, and it's not just uh, differentiated between the fantastic and the non-fantastic. When I was a kid, I was reading, I, I could read a Heinlein novel, and I remember one of my favorite books when I was probably in third or fourth grade was a history of the Alcan Highway, it turns out, which is a, a highway built by the Army Corps of Engineers between uh, from, from northern Washington to Canada, through to, to Alaska through Canada. It was an engineering book. And it was terrific fun, and as far as I was concerned, it was as science fictional as The Roads Must Roll. Yeah. Um, you know, they were all books about making things, about having adventures, about going into the wilderness, about going into unexplored territories and that sort of thing. And at some point, some writers, some readers, differentiate those as being incompatible. Yeah. Uh, I actually have a friend uh, who did her dissertation on um, what I thought was a fascinating topic, and I could not get her to publish it. I'll still get on her case. It was on adult non-readers, on why okay. people stop reading, why okay. people stop reading fiction, and when it happens. And it was almost always the result of schooling. Okay. It was almost always around what we in the states would call the fourth grade, what eight or nine years old. Yeah. Uh, that at some point they are taught that there are things that are real and things that are not real in fiction. Mm -hmm. And they're not told this, but they're invited implicitly to make their choice at that point. And male readers tend, at that point, to choose nonfiction. Okay. Female readers are much less inclined to do that. And there's a third group of readers, who are the people probably like our tribe, who refuse to make the choice. Yeah. And, and so you have this uh, pattern among, again, a lot of science fiction readers and a lot of science fiction writers who write accounts of their own past reading experiences of... Um, reading all kinds of fantasy and science fiction and then reading histories and reading scientific american and reading accounts of physics and astronomy yeah. otherwise nothing in between yeah um, i don't know where that's going i don't know where there's any point <laughs> a line of reasoning at all but it does I, I guess what it gets back to is you know who's going to read things as disparate as edge of infinity and under my hat and i think you've kind of answered the questions people who don't really build a wall between those kinds of readings. I, I guess so, except I don't know that I particularly, whilst I am that reader and I allow for that reader, I don't particularly yeah. look for there to be a reader who's going to read both. You know, I kind of feel like, I mean, they, there, there are ways they overlap, but also for the book to have integrity, it's got to have its own core, and that core is what it is, you know, and that's what those readers will, re will respond to. I guess what I'm arguing against is a point that I've been arguing for during several podcasts. Yes, which is? Uh, we've been, well, we've been, we've been both making the point that the readership is atomized. There are yes, many, many micro-readerships. But now we're getting at what's the commonality between all these different readerships. Well, yes, that, well, yeah, well, yes. What we're getting, well, we're getting to the motivation behind the act of reading something like this. Yes. Which, right. is, which is interesting in and of itself. But doesn't get past the fact that um, 
everything else still has atomized and now you're getting down to really down to what it real just small groups of individuals are interested in which is absolutely valid but um is a different kind of a thing well this is okay, hard, this hard really goes to this, this goes to the question we really began this whole discussion with we were we were not going to talk about awards the whole time yeah yep. we ended up but one of the reasons we have awards and one of the reasons we have years best anthologies is to try to find these areas of commonality. Yep. Uh, I know when I looked at the Hugo nominees list this year, for example, uh, and it's been, what, 20, 30 years since fantasy was included in the Hugo remit? Yeah. Uh, it's been a long time. Um, and I, re I vaguely remember, because I was not active involved, actively involved in the field and that's in that way. But I remember in the early years there were there was there was a sense among science fiction readers that oh those those things got on the Hugo ballot because of them yeah those fantasy people want to take over the Hugos mm -hmm. and now I think most people look at the Hugo ballot and sent to the thing okay yeah there's fantasy and I don't read that but that's fine um, I don't oh, but, think there's quite as much internecine warfare as there might have been oh no Gary it's just changed. I mean, there's, oh, still, maybe there's still the science fiction, science fiction versus fantasy people because I still hear it every year. People going, "Oh well, I really don't think that J.K. Rowling should have made the novel ballot. I thought the Hugo's were just for science fiction. You know, the uh, fantasy has a world fantasy award ballot." Uh, and you also get people going, "Oh well, that stuff only got on the ballot because there a bunch of old farts voted for it. If there weren't the old yeah. farts around it, then you know we'd get." There's always internecine stuff around awards, Gary, particularly popular vote that has eleven or twelve hundred people voting. So yeah, of course there are. Of course there are, but I'm not. Uh, I'm not talking about loyalties to specific subgenres. I'm talking yeah. about the fact that I think there's a large group of. Um, I think you're absolutely right. Those those complaints occur whenever you get yeah. a, a Jackson Award ballot or a World Fantasy ballot or a Hugo ballot and that sort of thing. I think the reaction of most people is to think. Okay, that's all right. It may not be what my ballot would have been, but you know, yeah. big deal. Uh, yeah. Most people kind of yawn and think if they've got one or two things they like on a ballot, they're happy. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. You have people who want who, who want to proselytize for their own fields, and they absolutely should do that. I mean, mm -hmm. the more proselytizing that goes on, the more the the, the more you have uh, the, the notion that there's something in that person's passion that other people might want to take a look at. It's true. Uh, and, and, and you have writers continually doing new things. I mean, I swore I'd, read an, I'd never read another zombie novel. And then <laughs> I read the Daryl Gregory novel, and then it turns out, well, okay, there's the passage, and they're not really zombies. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I want to read any more werewolf novels, but I'm really curious about the Ben Percy novel. Um, so the, the idea is that people who passionately advocate a particular area have a point. They yes. want more readers reading the stuff they like. Yes. And they're probably right. They are. Um, yeah. This is all interesting. Where, where are we going to with, with it, Gary? Because we're nearly out of podcast time. Well, we better be because we're nearly out of material, too, aren't we? <laughs> I think we are. Maybe that's the perfect time to, to wrap up, to say, we'll listen back to this and see if there's any point to it other than people, you know, we're still trying to influence the field and we're hoping to have nifty guests on because, of course, if I had not been on well this last week, we would have had a podcast at last week and hopefully we'll make that up next week by having Mike Harrison on. Yes, we're going to be trying some interesting guests over the next few weeks, we hope, and then as well, actually, you'll not be heading anywhere outside of Australia until the fall, oh, I guess. Right? Until, 
Yes, until until October for for World Fantasy. Right. When and I I may be coming in a group or by myself. I don't know. Okay, and I'll I'll be off to probably at the Locust Awards, probably at uh, almost certainly at ReaderCon and uh, almost certainly at uh, WorldCon in San Antonio. So that's I'll be this this is my period where I reconnect with the world that we're talking about. Yeah. And try try mightily to disconnect from the world of academia. <laughs> Try, try and convince them all to do what you want, Gary, to shape the field. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Ah, oh, well, hopefully that will work. But in the meantime, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go have a shower, and then I'm going to go to a home open, Gary. That's what I'm going to do. That sounds like a lot of fun. I'm going to go to home open because opening shortly, they're the my my the house that I grew up in as a kid is on the market. Really? Yes. My parents' house has gone back on the market and we're just going to sort of sticky beak around that's the beginning of any number of Richard Matheson stories or <laughs> house stories as a matter of fact there is oh, oh no. we will we will leave this uh, for our listeners to figure out a story I read within the last year where somebody goes back and visits the house where they were children yeah, and yeah. they start having visions of the people who were in the house well, there you go. In the intervening years. Well, then. Well, until next anyway, time, good luck I, maybe with or without Mr. Harrison, we shall see, hopefully with. But you know, until then. Until then, uh, thank you for joining us again after our, our hiatus, and we will try not to hiate again soon. I think we'll try not to hiate until Christmas, shall we? That sounds like a good plan. Okay, we shall try not to do that. Okay. Until then, now as always, we remain your friends, the Mullers of Coot Street.